Hi, and welcome to The Beagle Has Landed. I am your host, Laura Hersher. I'm here today talking about a topic that is of interest, I know, to a lot of the genetic counseling community out there, and hopefully other people as well, which is the progress with HR 3235, the uh, bill that would give federal recognition to genetic counselors for purposes of reimbursement. And I'm thrilled to have Jillian Hooker here today. Jillian Hooker is Vice President of Clinical Development for the health IT firm Concert Genetics. She's an Associate Director, sorry, Associate Professor at Vanderbilt. And most importantly, for the purposes of this discussion, she is the current President of NSGC. And wow, like, Way to start your year, huh, Jillian? Yeah, it has been a busy few weeks. (laughs) I bet. I bet. It's a bit of a trial by fire, right? Absolutely. When you were a little girl imagining growing up to be president of NSGC. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Um, So let's. I know that people are interested in the flap with ACMJ, and we are totally going to get to that. But let's um, let's get a little update overview of how things are going with the bill. Yeah, it's uh, a great time to be giving an update. The NSGC Board of Directors was on the Hill last week meeting with representatives, drumming up support for the bill, um, and really had a number of great conversations over the day. So to back up a little, the bill was first introduced, this current version of the bill, 3235, was introduced at the beginning of the congressional session last year. So it's been about a year. Um, We now have 18 co-sponsors, bipartisan support. um, And the initiative is right now to to keep building co-sponsorship and support for the bill um, and also um, be communicating at the committee level to help move it through committee. And... What can people do? I mean, what do you, when do we find out? When, when does it, when does the vote happen? Yeah. Yeah. So um, it's an interesting process for sure. And there are at any given time, thousands of bills uh, moving through Congress. So really, I think that the biggest priority is to raise awareness and raise awareness from every perspective we can possibly raise awareness from. So certainly our genetic counseling community and engaging our community to reach out to their representatives, but also our patients, the physicians we work with, our colleagues, um, en- engaging their support and helping them um, engage with Congress around it. So that means going to DC, writing to DC, meeting with folks when they're back in the district, meeting with the, the, the Congress members when they're back in the district. Um, and to keep doing what I think our membership is really doing is articulating the value of genetic counselors to the healthcare system. And so someday when we have a, a, a majority in favor, does it just come up for a, like, how, how does that, uh, how does that work out? Is there a magic date? Yeah. So I think what happens first is it gets scored by the Congressional Budget Office. And uh, we've had a, a number of, of studies and folks look at that already and are really hopeful that it will score as something that will save Medicare dollars. Um, and I think with that, um, it, uh, it becomes even more likely that it gets picked up, added on to other bills because it can offset bills that cost money um, and then passed as a package uh, through the House and then through the Senate. So, I mean... 
is this something that could happen any time? Is it could it could it happen next yeah. week? Could ha- it has yeah. to happen by a certain yeah. period of time or so it expires, I keep right? Asking for a predictive linear regression model with all of the predictors of when a bill will pass. Um, And they keep telling me it's just not possible to do that. I wish there was. Um, So it seems like there's, there's a lot of uncertainty and there's a lot of things we can't control. And there are a few things we can control. And what we can absolutely control is engagement and articulation of the value of this bill passing. Hmm. Hmm. I mean, I know Washington's a pretty crazy place right now, but Mm -hmm. yeah. Okay. Seems a little nuts, right? So we have a lot of organizations that have signed on to support the bill. Over 250 organizations have now signed on. Amazing. Amazing. So that's this this great bulk. And my understanding is the American Medical Association, though it didn't sign on in support, it didn't take a stand against the bill. And that was very Mm -hmm. important, right? Mm Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, we have not um, heard that the AMA has taken a stance, and I think it's really um, our hope that they will remain neutral. Um, I can't speak for them, um, and I haven't had any conversations with them about the bill, uh, but I do think there are a lot of reasons to think that this bill is consistent with their efforts in precision medicine. I know that they're really worried about access, health disparities around precision medicine in this bill, absolutely addresses that. I know that they're thinking a lot about the evidence base for delivering precision medicine. And I think that's another area where we have um, a lot of good data to say that this bill will be valuable. And ACMG originally, uh, until a few weeks ago, was also neutral on the bill, not on, not not against. Is that right? Uh, I I, I don't know. So I'll I'll (laughs) tell you the story as I've experienced it. So The um, first bill to be introduced was actually introduced um, in the last legislative session at the end of 2018. Um, And at the time that bill was introduced, they wrote a letter expressing support for the bill, but support with caveats. Um, Caveats that at the time were sort of vaguely worded around genetic counseling scope of practice, but it wasn't, um, wasn't really well defined. And so then um, fast forward to 2019, the new bill is introduced and um, we weren't really sure what their position was on it. Um, Moving into the fall, we issued the sign-on letter, the one that you referred to a moment ago that 250 different organizations, providers, patients, labs, healthcare organizations have signed on to, um, and they hadn't signed on. And we were getting questions from members about their position, about why they hadn't signed on and initiated conversations at that point with them. And it was really at that point that they wrote another letter at the end of 2019, articulating more specifically their concerns about genetic counselors practicing medicine. And they outlined five really broad areas of the practice of medicine that they were concerned with related to the bill. And they wanted to make sure that um, the bill had language in it uh, that would um, specify scope of practice and, and make sure that it didn't um, sort of impinge on the practice of medicine. By impinge on the practice of medicine, mm-hmm. as I understand it, so feel free to correct me, because that's why you're here. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it boils down to being they don't want genetic counselors to be able to get reimbursement for ordering tests or interpreting tests. 
Yeah, yeah. So I think that's the interesting part of it is I don't think any of us would claim I'm involved with the genetic counseling training program. And I don't think any of us would claim that we are training our genetic counseling students to practice medicine. And I think most of the five areas that they outlined are well beyond the scope of genetic counselors and not currently included uh, in the practice-based competencies for genetic counselors. The one area, the one piece of one area um, that does overlap pertains to the ordering of genetic tests. And we, um, over the last decade or so, have been introducing that both in, in state licensure laws, it's now in our competencies, and largely in response to the overwhelming data about the value genetic counselors can bring when they're, when they're involved in the test ordering process. So it's really an evidence-based move uh, to include that and to include that within the genetic counselor scope of practice in state licensure laws. Well, I mean, so, I mean, I, you know, if those of us who work in this field, yeah, like, it's value and need, right? Because yeah. Uh, yeah. here's the thing that really stuns me about this move, which, by the way, I think is a really big deal to genetic counselors because it's offensive. Mm. But I, I don't really know that it's such a big thing in terms of our license our efforts to pass the bill because they're a small group in a small organization right mm-hmm. so like it's not like the ama taking a stand against the bill from a practical matter right yeah yeah um yeah i agree i think i think it's a short-sighted position that really doesn't take into account as you just mentioned the um, enormous health disparities right now in our country in terms of who gets access to genetic testing and who doesn't um, uh, well, I mean, there's, the there's so many genetic divide. tests. Yeah. There's so much genetic testing, mm-hmm. um, and it's now you know first line therapy in pediatrics in certain circumstances. It's commonplace in college. Mm-hmm. Blah 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 blah. There's so mm-hmm. much testing, and there's what maybe like two thousand geneticists working in the United States today. I think that's not maybe yeah memorized, but that's that's around yeah. the, that's around the number, and so there is no universe where the argument can be made, look, all of this needs to run through a geneticist MD. That can't be the argument that would bring the field to a standstill. Yeah, um, no, I think that would be really problematic from an access standpoint. And really I think we've already problematic. seen that. So, and, and, and if you work, you know, you know, we know <laughs> that if what they're saying is all the ordering should go through non-geneticist MDs, that's just... It's mm-hmm. silly, right? Yeah. Like, yeah, and we've see, received a lot of letters of support from our physician colleagues who work really closely with genetic counselors, um, citing the role that their genetic counselors play in helping them identify the right tests, um, both on an individual patient in the clinic level and then also across entire health systems where you have genetic counselors reviewing every test order that goes through the health system and identifying um, both errors in test orders and significant opportunities for cost savings across those health systems. Yeah. So, I mean, I felt like they put this out and it made so little sense mm-hmm. in so many ways. And the other, the other thing I'd like to say, and obviously uh, you and I are on the same page here, mm-hmm. so this is a, not a very adversarial interview. So like, and let me tell you what I think, but I honestly do think, you know, this is offensive to us genetic counselors have responded that way. It's sort of saying, we don't trust you to do things you were trained to do and that things that multiple lines of evidence show you do well and bring value to the systems, to the health systems, to the payers, to the patients. So we don't trust you, in fact, to do that. But it also is like, to me, bizarrely, like, 
do they disrespect themselves? Like they're a small group and it's Mm -hmm. like, do they really feel that this piece of their turf is something they so desperately need to protect that there isn't a pressing need for them to do less routine things? Because that yeah. that's what I think. I think there is a pressing need for them to do less routine things. Yeah. Yeah. I think that there, there are. Um, and I think it's been one of the biggest challenges to this debate is that it hasn't really been clear what problem they're trying to solve with their position, with their legislative activities, or their efforts to change the language of the bill. Um, there's not really any data to say that there's a problem to be solved. In fact, the data would would indicate the contrary, um, that as we've, we've talked about, uh, genetic counselor competency in the area of test ordering has been pretty clearly demonstrated. So it's hard in the absence of a problem to address um, to understand why changes to the federal bill would really be necessary. So you had an in-person meeting with the people from mm-hmm. ACMG, and did that clear anything up? Yeah, we, I think both the, the board of the ACMG and the board of the NSGC had hoped um, that we would find areas of common ground. Um, and unfortunately, we really weren't able to. I think they feel like they don't see a path to supporting this bill unless there are restrictions on genetic counseling practice, um, which doesn't make sense to us. And it doesn't make sense for two reasons. Um, one, because we're not advocating for the ability to practice medicine. We're really talking about, as I said, this narrow piece of practice, which pertains to the ordering of genetic testing, um, which is far more granular than anybody would write into a federal bill. And then I think the second issue is that scope of practice is not typically addressed by federal bills, and there's not a lot of precedence for that. It's addressed at the state level with state licensure bills. Do you think that this is a rank-and-file opinion? I know I'm asking you to speculate, but do you think this is a rank-and-file issue or the leadership of ACMG? Because these are a lot of people that we Mm -hmm. work with. Yeah. Yeah, I think it's it's not clear. I'm not aware of any public discussions that have taken place uh, within the ACMG about this. I know we've received a lot of really powerful letters of support from medical geneticist colleagues, um, either saying they flat out disagree uh, with the positions that ACMG has articulated in their letter, um, and and also just that they support the bill as it's currently written. So, aside from letters of support to you, is there so if you work with physicians, whether they're geneticists or other MDs that mm-hmm. support the bill, is there something useful they can do? Yes, absolutely. I think their voices are so important um, in this discussion. And I think it's really critical that they um, be writing letters, that they be reaching out both to ACMG, to the AMA, um, and to our Congress, Congress people in support of the bill. I think their voices are really, really important right now. And so I think that's an important message for our membership and also for anyone um, who's listening to this podcast, um, who's in a position to weigh in as a supporter of the bill, I think it's a really important time to do so. Yeah, we we both work with student thesis work. Mm-hmm. I know some of the projects I've done over the years, it's sort of like, I feel like every time there's a question where you can break it down that way, you know, what do you think of as the value of genetic counseling here? Mm-hmm. Any, any, any of the physicians who've worked with them are like, so valuable for my practice. So I think in other words, I don't think it's by and large a an adversarial relationship. Mm-mm. Mm-mm. And I, I think that's the other thing that's a little baffling about the position is it really, and, and 
probably was surprising to many of our members and, um, and, and really upsetting and frustrating is that it doesn't map well to the reality that a lot of people are living in their daily lives and in their jobs every day. Um, and so I think attention needs to be called to that as well. And I mean, that's not just about genetic counseling. When you look at medicine as a rule, uh, the direction we're headed in is that, you know, I, I, which I, I think that in many yeah. cases doctors embrace is moving what isn't what's at isn't at the top of their scope of practice out of their practice, mm-hmm. right? Because mm-hmm. the system is so stressed um, and it's really to their benefit. Let everybody be doing the things that they alone are trained to do. Mm-hmm. Um, because the, the pressures on the system are such, right? You know, um, so I, I don't actually think this is just a genetic counseling issue is what I'm trying to say. No, I completely agree with you. And I think that ties into the discussion I wish we were having right now. I think it's really unfortunate that we're spending so much time talking about scope of practice when what we should be talking about is our vision for the healthcare system that we're trying to create and the roles that genetic counselors can play in creating a healthcare system that isn't driving off a fiscal cliff because nobody can afford it, um, yeah. But that is is finding ways to serve people that are higher quality um, and that we can afford and that, that we as a country can afford to pay. I think those are really the critical questions facing medicine as a whole and certainly precision medicine. I mean, access is everything mm-hmm. in the next phase going mm-hmm. forward. Mm-hmm. That's the, the question. I mean, we have so we will have so much to offer, and we are we are beginning to have so much to offer. And it's the first time you could really say that, right? The last yeah. couple of years, first time you could honestly say that. Um, before you could say we've got a little bit to offer. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. we got a few tests here, some yeah. things that we really know work. But it's that's growing by leaps and bounds, and access is not growing by leaps and bounds. And this is mm-hmm. like, you know, we need to find all the ways to increase access. Yeah, and I think that that's something when we're on the Hill, so I've been out there twice um, in the last six months, and that is one of the number one issues that I think folks in Congress are worried about is access. And one of the things we can speak to is that genetics by and large exists in metropolitan centers and academic hubs. And with this bill and with this bill combined with the ability to bill for telemedicine services, we can dramatically expand access to the rural parts of the United States who currently really don't have access. So there's tremendous potential to do that. And we have a model that is highly amenable to telephone counseling um, that that can do it. We already have a lot of data for it. So I think that that's something we hear people on the Hill getting really excited about when it comes up. Yeah. Yeah, I bet. So uh, going back to what you you said, um, so how many states have licensure now? I'm testing you. I'm sorry. Yeah. So we have 29 states uh, that are currently licensed. So just in the last couple of years, we've seen a real flurry of states passing licensure bills. So that's really exciting. There's been an, a real uptick in the momentum. Not um, here in and, New York, by the way. Yeah. The eight ball. Sorry. They are in the minority. I hope they know that. <laughs> Honey, do we ever know that we're in the minority? Please. Yeah. Um, we're actually a majority minority. It's confusing. Um, so... Uh, I'm gonna let me just pause on that to say, and isn't it nice the presidential pol the presidential politics we're talking about today is 
is NSGC presidential politics. Oh, yeah. 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 Uh, everything else is boring. I'd take that any day. Yeah. So, so what's the range of what, how the difference is? So you, as you said, mm-hmm. scope of practice is really something mm-hmm. that's determined at the state level. Mm-hmm. That's where the, the, the meaningful laws yeah. are made. Mm-hmm. What's the range in the licensure laws that we have? So I think by and large, for most of the licensure laws, scope is pretty consistent. But where there is variation is in the area of test ordering. So right now there are 10 of the 29 states that have laws that allow genetic counselors to order explicitly. Of the 19 other states out there, um, they don't explicitly say you can't order tests, but they often use an alternative language like identify and coordinate testing. There's only one state right now that I know of that explicitly does not allow genetic counselors to order tests, and that's Pennsylvania. We're looking at you, Pennsylvania. Mm-hmm. Um, is there a reason for and that? There, I, I would assume that it had to do with how the licensure law rolled out. Um, and opposition uh, at the time um, from from folks who opposed that scope. And we do know that a small but vocal group of medical geneticists in some states are continuing to advance an agenda to restrict the scope of practice. Um, The Michigan licensure law that passed last year, I think that was from the get-go an agreement that test ordering would be off the table. And it's my understanding that Oregon, um, I think that recently passed also, had an issue around test ordering. So it's not just an old issue as it pertains to state licensure laws. I think it's ongoing. It's something we need to be aware of and talking about. At the same time, there are other states where the state medical boards and the state medical societies were totally on board and really wanted test ordering to be a part of the scope of practice, um, both because they respected the models that they were currently practicing and working with their genetic counselors to order tests, and also because there's Um, sort of the line of argument that goes, why would they want to assume liability for a decision that's being made by someone else? Mm -hmm. That makes sense. So, so Jillian, if we had licensure in 50 states and Mm -hmm. Puerto Rico and and District of Columbia, um, I don't want to leave them out. I don't want to leave anybody out. Mm -hmm. Big tent. We're a big tent genetics. Mm -hmm. Um, Would we need this bill? Yeah. So I think that gets really down to the distinction of what happens at state licensure and what happens with the bill. The bill is specifically about being able to bill Medicare and be recognized providers under Medicare. State licensure really doesn't address that. State licensure maintains a standard for who can call themselves a genetic counselor in that state and who has met the state requirements for genetic counseling. And it also defines the scope of practice within which those people can practice. The federal bill is about billing for Medicare and reimbursement for services under Medicare, where in order to be a federally recognized provider, you need an amendment to the Social Security Act, which is what our bill is, to call yourself a federally recognized provider. So it's really two different issues. Yeah. Okay. That's very helpful. Thank you. So I, I can take this question and put it in like the polite way, the sort of like, you know, the like, what can we do to help? But also, mm-hmm. there's a lot of people out there that are miffed yeah. at ACMG. Yeah. And, um, you know, there's been discussion of boycotting meetings, mm-hmm. dropping membership, and so mm-hmm. on. Do you, do you, I'm going to lob this to you softly. <laughs> do you think like everyone should do what they want? Wink, wink, nod, nod. Or are you like, no, that's counterproductive? 
Yeah, I, I think it's hard. I know I, you're not going to advocate for it because you um, have to play nice. Yeah. I, I feel the emotion of it. Like, I certainly do. I feel the frustration. I feel the anxiety. I feel the desire to respond, to react, um, and to retaliate. I mean, I, I, I feel all of those things emotionally. But when I think about what's most important here and go back to that perspective of how do we create the vision we want to see for the future? I think the way we create that vision is to articulate that vision and focus on articulating that vision and articulating the value we bring, articulating the data um, that's out there to support the value we bring, and really sort of taking that stance in the long run is the position that serves us, that serves our bill, that serves our field, that serves all of the people training to be genetic counselors and wanting to train to be genetic counselors. That's, that's the position that serves them best in the long term. Yeah, but so if you're listening to this and you're a member of ACMG and you do support the bill, you don't support the membership, I would like to hear from you. I, I'd really, I wish I could survey their membership. I'm not quite sure how they feel about putting that survey mm-hmm. on a list, but probably negatively, I'm guessing. Yeah. Um, but, you know, I'm really curious how well this um, reflects the, the rank and file because... It, it feels to me like sort of last gasp, old, old school, sort of holding on to models that don't work anymore. And that's really not an I'm offended personally response. Mm-hmm. It's just yeah. like, we all have a job to do, right? Like, yeah. um, and, and we're, we're swamped in need. Mm-hmm. In, Tons and tons of people who would be better off getting genetics expertise before or after testing are just not getting it right now from anybody. Yeah, yeah. Or people are getting the wrong tests or um, are being subject to fraudulent schemes around testing. Like there are lots of big problems to be solved in precision medicine right now, which is where I think we really... Okay, cook um, it, cook it, Jillian. You had that great quote, that great quote, the (laughs) Medicare fraud. You were like, what what did you say? You said, you know, what what are the biggest problems we can solve right now? I don't, one, I'm I'm not sure this is a problem to be solved. I, I don't believe it is. Um, and if, if it is, it hasn't been articulated to me in a way that I understand it. Um, and two, there are a lot of other big problems uh, to be solved. And that we as a community, we as a genetics community, physicians, genetic counselors, researchers, uh, folks in the lab, like we as a community should be working together to solve. I think that would be the most best way we could be spending our time right now. Yeah, we're a small, we're a small world. We're a small world. And the other thing you haven't mentioned that there is an evidence base on, there is an evidence base to suggest that when doctors who do not have genetics expertise do the ordering, things can go very badly wrong, right? Yeah, I think so. Although I think, you know, the, the best way to focus our energies in that area is in like how we work together. As I said, there's a lot of their yeah. scope of practice, the scope of practice of medicine that we are not trained to do. And so how do we collaboratively sort of take advantage of the strengths of, of many different training models to deliver the best care and team-based care to model to, to our patients. So, okay. So to summarize, we need the bill, even if we have licensure everywhere, this business about test ordering and interpretation is an is not 
absolutely out of the blue. It's an issue that's come up before in a handful of states and from, from ACMG's earlier reaction to the bill. The bill moves forward nonetheless, and mm-hmm. we have no useful predictions about when it might suddenly get voted on. Is that a good, is that a good summary of that? A little bit. I mean, I think I look at the predictive model that I was referring to earlier that doesn't really exist, but the predictive model having a number of variables in it that we can't control, we can't do anything about, but that there are some variables that we do have control over and that's where we need to be focused, which is awareness. If the folks in Congress aren't aware of our bill, they're going to have a hard time sponsoring it and helping us move it forward. So I think awareness is huge. I think, um, as we've talked about, the support from our physician colleagues is really important um, right now, both in light of this and generally to say that we are working collaboratively to create a better model. I think that's really important. Um, And I think that the way we talk about our value, and that to me, I would say, too, has been the silver lining of the last five weeks in this very public discussion we're having is that we do see our community getting stronger and doing a better and better job of articulating value and making a case for why this bill is important and making a case for our place in the healthcare system. And I think that's a really cool thing. It is. Well, I mean, I don't think it's just that we're getting better at articulating, to be honest with you, working in the education side of genetic counseling, you just see the the applicant pool getting stronger every year. I literally think the people are uh, better prepared they, they've heard about genetic counseling for a longer time. They've known about it. They're working towards it. They're terrific. It's a stronger and stronger group. Um, yeah, I couldn't agree more. It's a pretty exciting thing if you work in this field. Yeah, yeah. No, I, I could not agree more. I think that that is one of the most amazing assets we have right now are the 1,500 plus people who are applying to genetic counseling programs for the growing number of training slots we have and, and just as much the vision that they have coming in uh, for, for the field that they're entering, for the field that we're going to create. And I hope that it goes in directions that are far, far bigger than you or I could even imagine. <laughs> I can imagine. I can imagine. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm imagine. And you are a very good politician. Would you like to run for president of the United States? (laughs) Probably not. (laughs) Your experience here has not sort of led you to want to, you know, spend your life in politics? Come on now. No, definitely not. I am a one-issue candidate. I care a lot about genetic counseling. (laughs) And are you enjoying it? I do. I really do. I think um, if I were to stop and ask... Uh, how I might spend my days doing things that feel impactful. This would be very high on my list. So it really is. Well, uh, I hope that you get to see this bill passed during your presidential year. That would be very, very cool. Oh, from your lips, Laura. <laughs> well, that's how it works, Jillian. <laughs> I see. Duh. <laughs> Listen, thank you so much. I know it has been an incredibly busy few weeks for you, so I appreciate your taking the time to uh, come on here and talk about this issue at greater length, um, subject of curiosity uh, and concern to our audience, your membership, all of the above. I think it's one of those things, it all feels inexorable looking back, but man, when you're actually there, it doesn't feel that way at all because it takes so much pushing, right? Mm-hmm. But, and I, 
but thank you for this opportunity. I, I, I really, um, really enjoyed having a chance to get to talk about it. And I think it's important that we, we do and that we are talking about it. Well, thank you for coming on. And thank you guys for listening. Please go to the website BeagleLanda.com and subscribe and follow me on Twitter at Laura Hersher. And thank you, uh, Jillian, again. Good luck. Fight the fight. Take care. Bye. Thank you. Bye.